he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each week I, well, each week, each episode, I queen out on all the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutia that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker. Your name is Barbara Bell Geddes. And we're back, my friends. And boy, is this year just shaping up to be a barrel of laughs. But I am back, and I am here with, I think, a timely episode um, in terms of comfort TV, because I can certainly say in the past few months that has been as necessary as the pizza place near me that delivers with a speed and, a, and an accuracy that is um, unmatched. Shout out to Retro Pizza Cafe in Astoria, both you and the Golden Girls have been sustaining me. So um, I, the Golden Girls has always been, I may have talked about this a bit in the last episode, but you may not listen to all the episodes, and that's fine. But the Golden Girls has been a longtime uh, show that I can fall asleep to because I know it so well that it is now this kind of just ambient noise. It's just this, there's a familiarity to it that, kind of like The Office, um, Shit's Creek sometimes, like these things, I'm like, ah, go on old friends, I'm just going to drift off over here. It's uh, it's great. It's kind of, this must be what it's like when your dad falls asleep in the recliner while watching a movie. It's like, oh yeah, just need to put on that white noise. Um, so this week, I thought that I would probably, I knew that I should say, I knew that I would eventually discuss the Golden Girls on this podcast, but I kind of expected that I would have started with Rue McClanahan slash Blanche Devereaux because she is uh, far and away the most nuanced of the four. I'm obsessed with her. She's a, she's a one-woman band of nuances, and eventually we will celebrate that in more depth, but I, I couldn't I couldn't go on in this episode without at least giving her some moment of recognition Um this, of course, is really, I mean, when it comes to Blanche Devereaux, it's one thing to hear her, it's another thing to see her in action, but maybe you're familiar with this episode, maybe you're familiar with this moment, and this is just a, a nice refresher of Rue McClanahan at her best as Blanche Devereaux. This is from season seven, the episode when Sophia needs a new pair of shoes. Sometimes you get yourself a really good-looking salesman, and you try to pretend you don't notice his hands caressing your calf as he tries to keep his mind on shoes, but all the time he's thinking, dare I peek? <laughs> dare I look more? <laughs> dare I look where no eyes have looked before? <laughs> then as he kneels there before you, little beads of perspiration breaking out on his forehead, his breath coming shorter and quicker. He ever so gently slips the supple leather on your quivering foot. 
And you achieve a perfect fit. <laughs> Come on, old woman, we need shoes now. I mean, for me, the whole thing is, is just a master class of acting. But I think the moment for me is when she uh, starts to reach up and touch her hair as she says, uh, your quivering foot. And the way that she kind of, you know, fluffs the edge of her hair, I think that is uh, that, and and in and of itself, the inflection of your quivering foot, like that. Good God, you know. Um, anyway, so I, I, all that being said, is those are the kind of nuances that obviously I'm looking for. I'm doing a whole podcast about, but this episode is actually going to be about Rose slash Betty White and. I I scripted it, and so like I'm it, there's there's a, a bit of a like you know this is just the opening act. I am just the opening act of myself. Um, I wouldn't say speaking more eloquently, but at least having put some forethought into what I was saying. Um, so enjoy this exploration, this celebration of Betty White in uh, an episode all about Rose's last birthday in Saint Olaf. Uh, which is, if you haven't seen it, I will put uh, a link in the description because you can find the clip in, a, in and of itself on YouTube. It's um, it's great. It's just this one woman performance that, uh, well, I decided to do a whole episode about. So here goes, folks. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down a road and back again. Your heart is There's something sort of trendy and clout-gathering about liking Betty White. Impassioned cries to protect her at all costs are slightly less about preserving the life of a TV legend and more about the meme of it all. That being said, Betty White is like pigs in a blanket at a cocktail party. I am never not happy to see Betty White. Few actors have sustained as long of a career and a relevancy as Betty White. Few people have such glistening public reputations. Betty is like Fred Rogers. They are above and beyond the claws of cancel culture. There's nothing to cancel. Every generation has a different entry point into Betty White's career, but as a gay man in his 30s, it should come as absolutely no surprise whatsoever that the Golden Girls was mine, and to be specific, the seemingly endless reruns on Lifetime starting in the 90s. I was too young to watch it when it first aired and too young to totally get it when it re-aired. It wasn't until my late 20s when I finally watched the whole show from stem to stern to keep up with the references that my older boyfriend at the time knew and I did not. And on the countless rewatches, I've come to appreciate the show on a molecular level and in particular the women in it. Which brings us to Rose. I won't expound too long upon her many virtues as the often blithely unaware Rose Nyland. While I love the St. Olaf stories and her ability to ask a stupid question... Can I ask a dumb question? <laughs> Better than anyone I know. For me, Rose really blooms, if you will, when she gets real. Season one kept the ladies more grounded in reality, but as the show went on, Rose lifted further into the stratosphere of the absurd, and stories from St. Olaf began to resemble vague Twilight Zone episodes. 
But then she'd get an episode like season four's 72 hours, where Rose potentially contracts HIV from a blood transfusion and has to wait three days, 72 hours, doing the math for you there, for her test results. Oh, I'm just sitting here kicking myself for not taking care of my gallbladder and for going to that hospital for the operation and for letting them give me blood without asking first, oh, excuse me, are you sure this isn't going to kill me one day? Now, now, Rose, take it easy. Why does everyone keep saying that? I don't feel like taking it easy. I might have AIDS, and it scares the hell out of me. And yet every time I open my mouth to talk about it, somebody says, there, there, Rose, take it easy. I'm sorry, honey. Why me, Blanche? I'm tired of pretending I feel okay so you won't say take it easy. And I'm tired of you saying take it easy because you're afraid I'm going to fall apart. And she is surprisingly capable and effective in season six's Ebb Tide, the episode where Rose's younger brother Phil dies. At the very end of the episode, it's Rose who finally mediates a long-standing conflict between Sophia and her daughter-in-law Angela, played, of course, by the incomparable Brenda Vaccaro. Fun fact, Brenda won an Emmy for that episode, and that... Uh, should hopefully excite someone other than me. Rose is often at her best when she's surprising us, breaking from her usual seat in the punchline of the joke. And I think one of the best examples of that is in the season six episode, Piece of Cake, which is one of those flashback anthology episodes. Many people might remember this episode most for Dorothy's disastrous birthday celebration at Mr. Haha's Hot Dog Hacienda, which was, of course, all Rose's doing. But I think the best story in the episode and one of the best set pieces on the show was the flashback to Rose's last birthday in St. Olaf. Part of the magic of the Golden Girls is the dialogue, not just the lines themselves, but the delivery and sense of banter between the women. So much of all of their jokes relies on timing or on the reaction. B. Arthur is a categorical expert at getting uproarious laughter with just a blank stare or the rise of her eyebrows. So to see an entire scene featuring only one of the women is a rare moment on the show. B's ability to spin silence into gold or Rue McClanahan's richly mannered physical acting could likely fill a scene, but could this work for Rose? The conceit of the scene is that she's interacting with Charlie, her dead husband, pretending he's sitting at the kitchen table of their home in St. Olaf for a morning celebration of her birthday. We've heard countless stories about Charlie and how fondly Rose remembered him, but there's something special about seeing some version of their relationship in action. She's the only golden girl whose husband we don't meet. Stan's Borneck is a ubiquitous guest the entire series. Sophia has flashbacks of Sal and even sees him in heaven during a brief near-death experience. And Blanche contends with a George of the Living Dead in that bizarre It Was All Just a Dream episode where Sonny Bono and Lyle Wagoner are lusting after Dorothy the whole time. I get the impression that Rose's relationship with Charlie was very different from the relationship we see play out in later seasons with Miles. I think no matter how close she got with Miles, Charlie always had a piece of her heart and a piece of her that could not be shared again. While that subject was explored as early as season one's Rose the Prude with her budding relationship with Arnie, played ironically by Harold Gould, who would return to the series later as Miles, I think this scene finally gives us a glimpse into the dynamic she shared with Charlie. The scene opens on a fairly nuanced country kitchen. I couldn't help but wonder if this set was dusted off from another failed series or if it appeared later in Empty Nest at some point. 
Rose is in a bathrobe with a purple ribbon tied in her hair, and somehow that gives me all of the transformation I need for a slightly younger Rose. She sets a decorated birthday cake down on the kitchen table, lights the candle, then exits and returns with a performance of just waking up. I think this is such a telling little detail. She isn't just going to eventually have a conversation with her dead husband. She is performing an entire act for essentially herself. Rose gasps in surprise at the sight of the cake and exclaims that it's her birthday. Oh, my birthday! I completely forgot! Well, I better make a wish and blow out those candles before Mr. Hickenlooper has the entire volunteer fire brigade up here pumping water on my clean kitchen floor. It's interesting to hear Rose talk about St. Olaf in St. Olaf. She doesn't have to explain all of the oddities. They are the mundane. In terms of acting choices, on clean kitchen floor, Betty does this fidgety little move where she rubs her hands against her thighs. I don't know what it is, but it's definitely something organic and not directed. But it's, of course, somehow perfect, the excited agitation of a woman on her birthday. I swear that man will look for any excuse to make that siren sound through his nose. (laughs) Inga Lundqvist told me just this last week... I know. Shut up, Rose, and blow out your candles. (laughs) It's at this moment that we realize she's talking to Charlie. She jumps on this unheard interruption and looks to her left. The camera changes as well from a straight-on shot as if we were watching a filmed stage production to what feels almost like a soap opera angle from just beyond Charlie's invisible left shoulder. Rose goes on to blow out her candles and silently processes her wish. We know just from how she sighs and smiles at herself what the wish is, to have Charlie back. Okay, a wish. (sighs) I guess that was kind of a silly wish. I know you can't really be here with me, Charlie. It's taken me these past eight months to accept that, but I finally have... Then why our usual little private birthday celebration? Somehow it feels less lonely, Charlie. To be honest, there is a slightly false acting choice uh, when she's asking why they're having their usual private birthday celebration. She punches one hand into the other, a sort of nervous hand-wringing that I think Rue McClanahan would have probably pulled off with much more finesse. But I only mention that because it kind of threw me off the path, so to speak, the first time I really watched the scene with the nuance goggles on. I thought, okay, it's kind of what Betty does as Rose, and she usually gets away with the notes that feel a little too broad because Rose is, you know, well, a little <laughs> broadly written sometimes. Anyway, I think as the scene progresses, once the word lonely is uttered, the scene begins to settle in a bit. A welcomed weight appears at the edges, even if it still appears Rose is remembering fondly. I mean, this is the first special day I've had to spend without you. If it had been Christmas, I'd probably have hung your stocking. Or if it had been your birthday, I probably would have still asked the clerk down at Tuttle's to help me pick out a tie for you. Oh, I bet that would have gotten me some strange looks from the sales staff. Although they already look at me strangely. (laughs) Because at the time I tried to special order a double-breasted navy suit with a drop seat in the pants for Cousin Wendell. (laughs) 
The scene rarely reverts to a joke, but it is interesting to suggest that Rose, even in St. Olaf, was considered a bit of an odd duck. And any false notes from earlier are forgiven after the way she seesaws her voice on the name of Wendell. That's one of my favorite ways an actor can elevate a line, by finding some unexpected curve in the word. And it somehow tells us everything we need to know about Cousin Wendell, though the drop seat in the pants should fill in the rest of the details. And the hand acting is on point from here on out. The way she futzes with her fingers builds the anticipation and hints that all of this is actually about so much more than a delusion to keep the grief at bay, or just a delusion for the sake of delusion. Anyway, that was part of the reason. The other part was I wanted to talk to you. I know I didn't need a special occasion for that. It'd be more of an occasion if I stopped talking. I appreciated that this moment, which would normally be punctuated with a laugh, isn't given the exclamation point. The joke is less of a familiar dig at Rose and more of an indication of her self-awareness, and in particular, in the presence of Charlie. Maybe I'm putting too fine a point on it, but I like the idea that Rose is most herself with Charlie. This next scene, as she gets into it, Betty starts to caress her glass of orange juice. It's, again, a, a buildup of anticipation as she then leaps up from her chair, turns, comes to the back of her chair, and places her hands on it as if bracing herself. But I, I figured since it was my birthday, you wouldn't be upset when you hear what I've got to tell you. I've decided to sell the house and leave St. Olaf, Charlie. The winters are rough here in Minnesota. And this place is too filled with memories to let me get on with my life. This is all shot with Charlie's chair in the frame. But after this line, it cuts to just a solo shot of Rose. It's really smart editing as it syncs up so well with the narrative of what she's saying. I need to start over without you, Charlie. And I think this is the best way. I know it'll be tough in a strange town all alone, but I've read some wonderful things about Miami. Eventually, Rose sits again, but Charlie's chair is still not in the frame. And of course, it's worth watching her hands. Perhaps I have been so blinded by Rue McClanahan's nuances all this time that I haven't been appreciating Betty's body language, so let this also be finally an appreciation of Betty's body language. It won't be long before I meet nice people and, and make some new friends. I have a real good feeling about that. This next section is a beautiful emotional transition. There is something vaguely apologetic in how she says these next lines. So, I just wanted you to know what I decided. I hope to be in Florida before the next winter comes. But I know that wherever I am, you'll be right there with me. I like how Betty takes a brief moment before starting these next lines. I think it, it's like that moment when you know the tears are going to come, but you don't know what word or thought is going to set them off. This is where the scene takes another transition, and basically Betty White knocks it out of the park with two lines and a devastating glance. At the very end of the line, the, the cheery disposition starts to disintegrate, and Rose's wide smile in a half second fills with grief. And in a rare moment on the show, we see Rose's heartbreak. I love you, Charlie. 
I miss you. It's my birthday. You know the rules. I get the rose. The tears are glistening in her eyes, and good God, does her voice break on the word Charlie. The way she says, I miss you, is as if she has to get it out before she completely falls apart. It's a real gut punch of a moment. I would say it's absolutely on par with Valerie Cherish talking about the field hockey team photo in season one of The Comeback. Yeah, have a rod in my back, but, you know, doesn't limit me much, you know. Always been very active, very physical, you know. In fact, you know, even then I was on the field hockey team. Yeah, so, but that whole year, of course, I was in the body cast, so, you know, couldn't play. But I uh, still go to every practice, went to every practice, you know, dressed in the uniform for every game, right? And, uh, you know, still part of it, you know, ran around handing out towels and, you know, getting everyone water, cheering them on during the games, you know. Yeah, showed up every day. So it was, it was fun. Wouldn't let me be in the picture. So, I don't know what this is. <laughs> All of a sudden, woo! Like Valerie, Rose quickly tide shifts the moment and brings our and her attention back to the cake, to the birthday, to the delusion. But after seeing that moment of her truly missing Charlie and how quickly that grief can grab hold of her you can't really blame rose for all of the seasons of her living in her own fantasy world the scene fades to black with no music another rare moment on a frequently scored show there's no final joke and not even a complete return to the delusion really watching rose cut into that cake again there's that hand acting there's an eager determination that isn't just about cutting through all the layers It's the work she has to do to get back into the make-believe of a birthday celebration with Charlie. And not only the last one in St. Olaf, but the last one ever with him. The bright side of all of this is that she will move to Miami, and she will make friends. Friends that, you know, should she throw, say, a party, you know, perhaps invited everyone she knew. My assumption is that Rose would see some gifts for her of varying sizes, but one being certainly the biggest gift. Is there a card attached? Well, would you look at that? There is. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being a friend. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. I I highly recommend if you have seen this episode before, seen the scene before, watch it again. I mean, these deep dives are really kind of like, you know, you're only getting half the story because, uh, as you may have heard, there's a lot of fabulous hand acting in this scene. So uh, highly recommended. And I'll definitely do more episodes like this. I, uh, I think it bears repeating one more time that I am long overdue a Blanche episode. Um, but, you know, not to discount Dorothy. Let's be real. Uh, they're all great. Uh, anyway, uh, I think that's all I've got for you this week. This is just a fun little mini episode. Um, if you want to reach out with your feelings on Betty White, on the Golden Girls, on anything, what else you'd like to hear me kind of queen out about, uh, I don't know. If you want to just say hi, I'm not mad at that. Just drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Colin Drucker. You can find me on Instagram at Colin Drucker underscore. Um, and 
that's probably enough, right? Oh, we, oh, well, obviously that's not enough because you could also find me on Best Supporting Podcast with Nick Kachanov, and you could find me on All Right, Mary with Johnny. Uh, so, and and all of the social media that goes with those. So, um, yeah, uh, it, that's what I have to say about that. Uh, it's a lot of podcasting, but it's been great. Anyway, I think that's all I've got. Thank you so much for joining me for another celebration of all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutiae on In the Details. So yeah.